Welcome to Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 164, and it's 14th of August, 2021. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Very much non-Star Wars, because I've got <laughs> lots of life stuff happening <laughs> at the moment. It's all good stuff, um, everything's exciting, but yeah, it just means I haven't really had brain space for Star Wars. I've obviously had some, because I've like prepared the show notes for this episode <laughs> and stuff, but... Um, yeah, I, I'm just very busy at the moment. And on that note, I should say, unfortunately, that there's going to be another delay in the subsequent episode to this one, just because of the aforementioned live stuff. So, yes, the next episode won't be out in as timely a manner as I would normally like, but we're hoping to record that first weekend of September. So, yeah, look out for us again in the fall, as I believe <laughs> you Americans call it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just being a weirdo. How about you, Kirsty? How shall we be? It's been good. Uh, I read The Rising Storm and obviously we've had The Bad Batch, the first season culmination. Um, mm, yeah. yeah, so kind of lots to engage with and catch up on. And it's it been interesting to see people's reactions to things. Definitely. And I hear you watched a certain series of vampire movies as well. I did. I finally watched The Twilight Saga. I'd Amazing. seen the first one maybe not too long after it first came out. Um, and I haven't read the books, but I decided to watch them all because it feels like everyone's been watching them, to be honest. I think they just put them on Netflix, at least here in the US. Um, and yeah, I, I rode the hype train, I guess. Um, I'm sure for some people that was like a big nostalgic thing. But for me, it was watching them for the first time and, and it was a wild ride. <laughs> That's really cool. I love that. <laughs> because yeah, like I feel like they're constantly memed and you see images from them everywhere. But yeah, like I would be you in that situation because I haven't seen them. So yeah, your tweets about it were very entertaining. The, so. <laughs> yeah, there were just some like genre twists and mashups that I was not expecting and were pretty delightful. So it's nice to be surprised. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. I love it. Um but yeah, let's move into the news. Um, so unfortunately, the first piece of news we have to share is a sad piece of news. Um, it's because the author, um, who was is very well known within Star Wars circles, J.W. Rinsler, um, passed away and really young. He was only 58. Um, so it was really tragic. Um, there was a profile of him on the Star Wars website. Um, could you read out the bit I've highlighted um, from George, please, Kirsty? Rinsler worked closely with George Lucas for 15 years, joining Lucasfilm in 2001 and serving as the executive editor for Lucasfilm Publishing, then called Lucas Books, until 2016. Jonathan was a sure and steady presence across the years as both a writer and an executive at Lucasfilm, Lucas recalled Wednesday. With his kind and contemplative nature, you could see a glint in his eye, the wheels turning when he had a new idea and a quiet fervour with which he sought out ever more detail for the books he wrote and edited. The works he left behind are touchstones to times and places we can each remember and appreciate in our own way. It was really sad news. Um, I think we had known he was ill, um, unfortunately, because it had been shared publicly. Um, but yeah, I think part of me had kind of like suspended the inevitable endpoint of that. And yeah, it was still a bit of a shock. Um, I have really, really enjoyed his Star Wars books. I haven't read all of them, but I do own his making of Revenge of the Sith and making yeah, me of too. The Empire Strikes Back. Um, and they're both really, really extraordinary books. And yeah, just the level of archival research that went into them is just extraordinary. He was a really great author who was amazing at the work he did. So yeah, definitely sadly missed. 
yeah it's it's pretty shocking um like like you said we were aware that he was ill but 58 is just so young and he's contributed so much um those books really are special if you haven't ever read any of them i encourage you to pick them up because if you love those movies like the level of research the depth the information there um and just the way he curates everything it's just really special so he'll be missed yeah, they're the real Bibles, I think, when it comes to but the behind-the-scenes stuff for the Star Wars movies. And I really think that one of my great sadnesses in terms of Star Wars publishing and specifically behind-the-scenes publishing is that we know that Jonathan worked on a behind-the-scenes book about the making of The Force Awakens, but for mysterious reasons, that book has never been released and apparently it was completely finished and so it's going to be locked up in some archives somewhere. But yeah, hasn't seen the light of day, and that's a real shame. So I'm sure he gave that all the due diligence he did with all the other books he made. And yeah, it's just a pity. Yeah. Okay, it's hard to move on from sad news like that, but we must. The show must go on. Um, so yeah, the next piece of news is that there's just a little update on Taika Waititi's Star Wars movie, um, and this is from Wired. Um, could you read out what they had to say in uh, with regards to their interview with him? Having finished filming on Thor Love and Thunder, Watiti is now focusing more on his Star Wars film. It's still in the X space stage, he laughs, referring to the format scriptwriters use to set up a scene. But we've got a story. I'm really excited by it because it feels very me. Has it been a challenge to marry his irreverent tone with the operatically sincere Star Wars universe? I tend to go that down that little sincerity alleyway in my films, he says. I like to fool the viewer into thinking, Har, it's this. And then them going, damn it, you made me feel something. Yeah, I'm intrigued to see how this film turns out. I feel like I really love some of Taika's films and others I'm not so keen on. Like, this will be weird. It's very acclaimed. and I know lots of people really loved it. But Jojo Rabbit, for whatever reason, did not click with me. Um, And yeah, I had problems (laughs) with that film. And that could be a whole separate podcast. So I won't go into detail about those problems. But at the same time, I also really love some of his other films. Like, obviously, What We Do in the Shadows is a classic. And I also really, really love Hunt for the Wilder People. So I'd really like a Star Wars movie more in the tone of Hunt for the Wilder People. I think that does have, like, the zaniness and the wackiness, you know, that's very much Tyker's style. But it also has, like, a real, like, heart to it, you know, and Mm. it feels very sincere in the story it's telling and the characters it's exploring. So, yeah, I think that's the mode I'd most like to see from him. But at the same time, I just want them to give him lots of freedom. You know, I want to see more personal Star Wars movies that don't feel too, like, overlooked, I suppose. or don't feel like they're the product of too many chefs. So, yeah, if he can make something weird and singular, I'll be happy. How about you, Kirsty? What are your feelings about this project? Yeah, like you, I'm not sure what the overall tone would be because with Taika I do feel like his style has kind of gone one way and it's not necessarily the way I would have wanted it to go which sounds weird because you know it it's his work so that's that's his choice but like like you I think I prefer his earlier films so um yeah I'm I'm just waiting to see <laughs> sorry I just don't know what to say because yeah you just have these certain filmmakers that they just kind of go off in a way that like you you feel a bit more distance from their work than you used to especially yeah. it's hard when you like really loved someone's work as well uh, yeah no absolutely go. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, then now he's coming into star wars so it's like oh okay um 
And I just think it's interesting when people refer to Star Wars as like operatically sincere. Because yeah, so I, I really don't quite share that perspective of Star Wars being super sincere. It obviously is at certain points, but I think it's the blend of seriousness and humor that makes Star Wars so special and endearing. Um, so yeah, I, I, I look forward to seeing what Taika comes up with. Yeah, no, definitely. So I think with Taika, I, I do think he's extremely talented, but I think sometimes he can be he can be too Taika for his own good, if that makes sense. And I think there's also something of like a cult of personality going right. on with him, at least in Taika's own mind. <laughs> it's like that, I, this is going to sound I think like he plays completely... into it for sure. He does a hundred percent. Like um, there's this new movie out called Free Guy which I actually really recommend. It's really fun. It's like a new blockbuster with Ryan Reynolds and Jodie Comer. And Taika is actually in that film as an actor. And he basically plays like this megalomaniac, like owner of a gaming company. (laughs) He's just like a total (laughs) self-parody. Yeah, it's very, very extreme and and intermittently funny, I'd say. Sometimes he's not as funny as I think he's trying to be. Um, but yeah, that really sounds bitchy. So I'm just going to stop now and say, <laughs> I'm curious to see what he comes up with, but there are certain reservations that I have. So let's wait and see. <laughs> um, okay. And then the most important news of the episode is probably that there's a new Star Wars Lego special coming. Um, it's called Terrifying Tales and it's coming on 1st of October. And this time it's Halloween themed because last year's special was Christmas themed, which is very jolly and nice. Um, yep, yeah, so I have a little description here of it. Um, so could you read out the plot description of this special, please, Kirsty? After the events of Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, Poe Dameron and BB-8 must take an emergency landing on the volcanic planet Mustafar, where they meet the greedy and conniving Grabala the Hutt. The crime boss has purchased Darth Vader's castle and is renovating it into the galaxy's first all-inclusive Sith-inspired luxury hotel. While waiting for his X-Wing to be repaired, Poe, BB-8, Grabala and Dean, a plucky and courageous young boy who works as Grabala's mechanic, venture deep into the mysterious castle with Vader's loyal servant, Vane. Along the way, Vane shares three creepy stories linked to ancient artifacts and iconic villains from across all eras of Star Wars. As Vane spins his tales and lures our heroes deeper into the shadowy underbelly of the castle, a sinister plan emerges. With the help of Dean, Poe and BB-8 will have to face their fears, stop an ancient evil from rising, and escape to make it back to their friends. <laughs> I, I think this sounds fun. And I wanted... I couldn't remember who Vanny was, so I looked him up, and he is indeed an actual character that appears in the films, which I love. Is it the guy from Rogue One? Yeah, he's like, director credit has arrived, my lord, or whatever. <laughs> yes, and I love that, like... Rogue One isn't one of my favourite Star Wars movies by any means, but I do love that they had that type of character in there. because That dude is seriously yeah. still there after the rise of Skywalker. Like, he was there when Kylo went to Mustafar. And and he already looked really, really old in Rogue One. So, like, sequel trilogy is like 30 years later, and then mm. that means this special is over 30 years after this. Oh my god, so... Yeah, he must be taking some like good drugs or something to stay alive. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it sounds fun, and, and it does genuinely sound funny. I do really like the idea of Vader's castle being turned into a hotel. Hilarious. I can definitely see the um, market for that and the appeal. Like, there's bound to be lots of fascination with Vader, 
um, after the fall of the Empire. Um, it reminds me of that Father Ted episode where uh, <laughs> one of the priests has a collection of World War Two memorabilia, and te- and like it's all Nazi memorabilia. And um, Ted asks him, "Oh, don't you have any stuff from the Allied side at all?" <laughs> and he's like, "No, no, that doesn't interest me at all." <laughs> and you know for a fact there are people who are like that in the Star Wars universe. There are people who are going to be obsessed with the Empire and obsessed with the Sith to the extent of wanting to stay in a hotel. Yeah, wasn't that Ransom Castifer in Bloodline? Yes, you're right. Part. I had yeah, forgotten yeah. that. Yeah. Leia and him would argue about it. <laughs> <laughs> this is a moral. <laughs> So maybe connected. it is, but there's a market for it. Yeah, it's great. Um, but yeah, how do you feel about this special, Kirsty? Does it sound fun to you? It does. I love the Lego specials. Uh, yeah. I kind of wish that Finn had been part of it. Mm, maybe maybe yeah. he'll crop up at some point. But yeah, I feel like if Poe's there, you know, why wouldn't you just bring Finn, Finn along too? But yeah, I'm sure it'll still be great. I think animated Poe Dameron is my favourite Poe Dameron. So. Yeah, I definitely prefer him to live action Poe, 100%. <laughs> Do you want to read out who's going to be in it? Um, yes. Or do you um, want to just know the big one that you've got highlighted? Yeah, let's just know the big ones. To be honest, like I've vaguely heard of Jake Green, but the name doesn't mean a huge deal to me. So you say what the big one is. Christian Slater as Ren. Which is just the most perfect casting I've heard of, at least lately. Like That's, that's who I would pick as Ren. Why not? Pretty mind-blowing, isn't it? Yeah. Like, wow, I can't believe that actually happened for Star Wars. That is a big, big deal. And yeah, it just does make perfect sense because of the type of character Ren is as well. You need someone like with real presence and charisma to do that. Edgelord, sleazeball. (laughs) Exactly. It just doesn't make sense without that, basically. And yeah, I I just want to know the story there. You know, I want to know how they pitch this character to Christian Slater. To be fair, I don't know how Christian Slater's career is doing. Yeah, he might be extremely open to all opportunities, but I love it. And that, to me, feels like a big get. I'm surprised there wasn't like more fanfare about that, to be honest. If I were writing the press release, I'd be like, Christian Slater joins the Star Wars galaxy as Ren. <laughs> yeah, I want to see the film where he plays Ren in live action. That would be great. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. It was a nice surprise. Yeah, no, 100%. It'll be awesome. Um, okay, so next is the Bad Batch, um, and the Bad Batch is now finished, I, and that feels like it's gone super quickly, right, Kirsty? Yeah, I mean it's the first season, and they've already announced the second one, so yes. it's nice to know there's more to come. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it's done with for a while. Yeah, I'm sure that like with Resistance, season two is probably in production, like before season one was released. Mm. You know, because of how animation schedules work. Um, but yeah, I'm glad there's going to be a continuation. So I do like, enjoy the characters. And I think in terms of the quality of the animation and the craftsmanship behind the show, it's really stellar. I think it's definitely one of the best looking Star Wars animated shows we've had yet. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure it's worth really talking about these episodes one by one. Like, what's your general thoughts on these last three episodes, Kirsty? Did anything in particular really stand out to you? I think it was that there wasn't this big explosion of a surprise cameo to like wow the audience which yes. was that was what i wanted in terms of like focusing on these characters focusing on the bad batch getting back to their relationships with crosshair and kind of developing omega as well as she matures and like takes up more of a leadership role within 
um, the Bad Batch. Like, I just, I, I was happy that they kind of kept it small and focused on the characters that we care about. Yeah, I think that was my main takeaway as well from these last episodes, because I had become slightly cynical in terms of them, like, using a lot of characters from the Clone Wars and... Yeah, characters from other parts of Star Wars, basically, in the show, because it did sometimes feel like they were becoming crutches, kind of, you know, and they were distracting from the, like, actual Bad Batch themselves, and especially Omega. Um, but yeah, in these last three episodes, they definitely avoided that, and it was very much about the team and about Omega coming into her own, which I really appreciated. And yeah, there were just some really nice moments. Like, I did like that there was more, that more substantial time of crosshair towards the end but it was still like complicated and it wasn't like an easy reunion you know where it was like all oh, is forgiven you're back part of the team now you know because that's not even really what crosshair wanted in the end is it so mm. yeah i appreciated that they were quite honest with that situation and they didn't present easy answers to crosshair's alienation from the group so yeah i thought it was done in a surprisingly mature way yeah, I appreciated that they went in a way that there was like her on both sides because we hadn't really had the opportunity to see that from Crosshair's perspective, really. That, you know, he was like, you guys abandoned me. Um, which, you know, in a way they did, but as Hunter points out, you were trying to kill us. So <laughs> what were we supposed to do? Um, but it's just a bit more complicated than that because they had the conflict and, you know, those external pressures of suddenly being under the control of the Empire and yeah, there's a choice to be made there but from Crosshair's perspective he was making the right one um, because they were just serving the people who they had been previously working with um, it didn't feel like too much of a, a change um, so it's going to be interesting I, I, I'm not quite sure whether we'll be following Crosshair's path next season because it seems like they're kind of leaving him behind for a while. I'm sure he'll come back into the story at some point, but like, would we be following any of the story from his angle? Probably not. Um, but yeah, it does seem like he has to kind of go off and figure things out for himself. Yeah, absolutely. And I liked that they had bonded moments between Crosshair and Omega. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah you could tell that there wasn't like a great relationship there before <laughs> he was just like go away <laughs> exactly and to put it mildly there wasn't a great relationship um and yeah like it was nice to see like her becoming humanized in his mind you know and espe i especially loved that line at the end from omega to crosshair saying you're my brother too because mm. i thought that was just so like brief but really beautiful and powerful in terms of like summarizing the sentiment there and yeah i'm sure that planted a seed in his mind you know that's going to come back and blossom in the future so i don't think you lay that sort of groundwork and then have him become like a 100 percent evil baddie you know yeah um but yeah time will tell in terms of the end destination of that character how did you feel about what happened to camino yeah, I thought that was really interesting and that definitely felt like one of the more consequential things from this last batch of episodes because obviously that planet and that civilization played such a huge part in the events of the prequels, you know, in establishing the clone armies and it does make sense that there has to be some sort of like end point or resolution to what they were doing there, Yeah, you know, because then if say like the rebels were to go to Kamino and like 
like arrange a lot of money, you know, and pay them off. They could have had their own clone army, you know, to fight <laughs> the Empire. <laughs> In an alternate universe, maybe, who knows? Star Wars, um, what if? Oh god. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just giving ideas for free that they might actually use. Oh god. But it, yeah, so it made sense, you know, that it was basically taken off the board, you know, that that technology is no longer there. And also that they essentially like press scan like a Nalasi, I think it is, into helping them with their own nefarious projects, which I'm sure will lead back to Palpatine wanting oh, to clone boy. himself. I'm sorry. <laughs> I hate to do that. I know it's a downer. No, it's but... true because this is the next phase of cloning in the Star Wars like chronology, right? At this point, it all leads into the Palpatine slash Snoke slash Ray's dad <laughs> stuff. And baby yoda and all this sorts of you know star wars is all about cloning now it really is it's becoming one of the core tenants isn't it um and i'm not sure how i feel about that if you'd gone back a few years ago that's not really where i saw it going so it's like yeah. okay there's so much so much about cloning star wars an epic saga about romance redemption <laughs> and cloning Nice. I know this just being silly. I'm just being silly, but yeah, there is some truth in that. Um, and yeah, I, I still am fascinated. I guess morbidly by the whole Ray Dad thing. And, and I'm sorry, I know this is a tangent, but yeah, like I have so so many questions about like how the hell he even like escaped in the first place. Because I bet you anything, him go- running off and getting married to like Jodie Comer wasn't sanctioned by Palpatine. So. Yeah, I am curious about that. I know a lot of people just want to forget that happened. Well, this is the thing. It's like they could still decide to walk all that stuff back because it's not in the movie itself. But yes. the the more we move into that part of the timeline now, the more I'm like, are they just going to kind of double down on it? Because I still feel that has queasy implications for Ray. Like, I, I don't know. It's... In terms of her dad being a strand cast. Well, because they're not very clear on, like, actual family relationships and how, you know, if you're seeing Omega as, like, Boba Fett's sister and all, like, is, would we then see Palpatine as Rey's grandfather or is he essentially her dad if her dad is a clone of Palpatine? It's not like a conventional family tree, you know? Yeah, I think that's why they're using this strand cast language, you know, so then it's like no one knows what that means. <laughs> and they can basically decide what it means when it's convenient to them. Um, because, yeah, I, I, I don't like the idea of Ray's dad having 100% Palpatine DNA. You know, it's a bit... Uh, it's not great whatever happens, to be honest, you know, like the whole Palpatine thing. But, yeah, somehow it just feels better if it's a slightly more diluted Palpatine bloodline. I don't know. <laughs> But yeah, that's not the bad batch. Um, to return it to the bad well, it kind batch. of that's what we're saying. It kind of might be. It might be where sure. things are going, at least for the Nala Se side of things. I don't know how much we'll see of her going forward, but it is moving into that era. So yeah, like you say, Camino being blown up. You know, the whole fire when ready <laughs> from Tarkin. It's like it is the end of that period symbolically, at least within this series. And yeah. now we're kind of moving into, like, this This is the Imperial Age now. Exactly. Well, we know that Nala C has a habit of getting, like, attached to her little proteges <laughs> and charges. 
Maybe she's the one who ultimately helps Ray's dad escape and settle down and get Oh, maybe. maybe. Yeah. There's also, you know, they obviously made a point of revealing to the audience and to those characters, like, who Amiga is. Is she going to crop up in the Book of Boba Fett? And especially with, like, her existing relationship with Fennec now? Like, you know, what, what does that mean for those characters? Are we going to see them in live action together? Would we see a grown-up Amiga? At this point, I'd really like to, because um, I don't know. Like, this might be a false expectation or like an um, an unwarranted fear, perhaps. But subliminally, in the back of my mind, I have this fear that like Bob- the Book of Boba Fett seems like a very broy show. You know, it's just going to be lots of dudes doing bounty hunting and things. And obviously, I know it's got Fennec, and I really hope that she's super prominent throughout the whole thing, and that there's also other great female characters. But yeah, I, I kind of want like whatever interested in cool female characters I, I can get, please. So yeah, I would 100% welcome seeing Omega in that show. And I'd just be curious to see what sort of relationship she'd have with Boba. You know, because obviously there's a big time gap between the Bad Batch and the Book of Boba Fett. So they'd have to establish, um, yeah, like have these people met before. You know, is this the first time Omega's cropping up in Boba Fett's life? Um, I'm not even sure what the timeline of the Book of Boba Fett will be, you know, whether it's all going to be in the present of that Mandalorian timeline, or if they're going to flash back to what he's been doing since <laughs> the whole Return of the Jedi incident, I guess, where he well, got yeah, like, eaten by the sand monster. <laughs> you know, and like looking at how Amiga thinks of and interacts with Crosshair, it's like, how, how would she feel about Boba essentially working for Darth Vader? Like, she's yeah. good, you know? She's compassionate and forgiving, and and then Boba <laughs> is a villain for much of what we know of his story. Um, yeah, that'll be interesting. Yeah, no, sh- that should be really cool. I'll tell you what, that you saying that actually makes me think of a cool story potential. They could have a thing where like a young adult Omega runs into like young adult Boba Fett, and she's like disgusted by what he's doing, you know, and by how he's just like serving like trading services to anyone who can pay him you know without any morality Mm. you know she could be completely disgusted and then you jump forward they meet again like in the mandalorian timeline and obviously boba fett's trying to do something a bit different and new you know in that phase of his life and might actually be getting something resembling moral fiber you know um and yeah it would be interesting to see her meet him again then and perhaps have to reassess her opinion of him Mm. but yeah that's fan fiction but you know something they could do. So yeah, we'll yeah, see. Yeah. Fully plausible. I feel like there are lot, lots of options and directions they can take that character, and I think she's been really well received by the fandom as well. So I think most people would happy to be happy to see her crop up elsewhere. Yeah, no, definitely. She's been the standout character of the whole Bad Batch series, I think, for me. Like, so I do enjoy the Bad Batch themselves, but I hate to say it. I think apart from Hunter and Crosshair. They, they don't feel particularly like developed as characters, I guess. Oh, I love Wrecker. <laughs> I do also really love Wrecker. I think he's really sweet. But he, he kind of, he's kind of like the human like Chewbacca kind of, you know? Oh. Just, like lovely, you know? I think he's adorable and he's just so nice and warm and cuddly. But I, I don't find him super I mean, he did, character. he did try to kill Omega. That's true, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what am I talking about? He clearly does have that streak of darkness I love so much. So. Well, they all do. That's the thing. Like, and you know, they have their chips removed, and there's this interesting thing now where it's like, well, did Crosshair have his chip removed? Is are these genuine choices? Do the clones truly have free will? And 
even if they do they're making these choices in the context of like nothing about the empire has been remotely explained to them and obviously they're seen as disposable resources they're not fully seen as people by um the imperials who command them you know that they're just as far as they're concerned the clones are old technology and they're moving on and they're going to use people now um so i don't know they're not making fully informed choices at least i don't believe that crosshair is so it's like yes i think you're making mistakes but i have a lot of sympathy for him so yeah it is it's much more nuanced than i thought it would be because i think the inhibitor chip maybe was an easy way out of like avoiding that morality um so the fact that they've made a point of saying that he he had it removed and he was still making these choices it's like oh okay it's not that simple yeah great i think that's a perfect moment to move on to our next segment which is about the rising storm so yes this is essentially going to be a continuation of our episode on night of the jedi um because the rising storm is like the main follow-up essentially to that book um it's written by kevin scott and it came out a few months ago now i think maybe last month i'm not 100 percent sure um but yeah recently and we have now both read it so yeah we're gonna have a very spoilery chat about the novel and our feelings about it and what we liked what we didn't like etc etc um obviously it really helps if you read the book in order to follow this discussion but we'll do our best to make it comprehensible if you haven't read the book um so yeah to help with that could you read out the synopsis to the book please kirsty mm-hmm Following the dramatic events of Light of the Jedi, the heroes of the High Republic era return to face a shattered peace and a fearsome foe. In the wake of the great disaster and the heroism of the Jedi, the Republic continues to grow, bringing more worlds together under a single unified banner. Led by Chancellor Lena So, the spirit of unity extends throughout the galaxy, with the Jedi in newly established Starlight Beacon Station at the Vanguard. In celebration, the Chancellor plans the Republic Fair, a showcase of the possibility and peace of the expanding Republic, a precept the Jedi hope to foster. Stellan Geos, Bel Zetifar, Elzar Man, and others join the event as ambassadors of harmony. But as the eyes of the galaxy turn towards the fair, so too does the fury of the Nile. Their leader, Martian Rowe, is intent on destroying the spirit of unity. His storm descends on the pageantry in celebration, sowing chaos and exacting revenge. As the Jedi struggle to curb the carnage of the rampaging Nile, they come face to face with the true fear their enemy plans to unleash across the galaxy. The kind of fear that even the Force cannot shield them from. Dun dun dun! <laughs> Excellent reading, Kirsty. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, so let's really begin by just our overall thoughts. Um, so I'll go first because Kirsty just did a big chunk of reading. Uh, so yeah, I really liked it overall. Um, I think I preferred the story in this one to Light of the Jedi. So I think I said in our Light of the Jedi discussion that Light of the Jedi had a lot of heavy lifting to do in terms of doing the world building and setting the scene and introducing all the characters. Whereas I felt like with this one, because I, I knew the world, I knew the characters, I could follow the story more easily, you know, and it was like just a more enjoyable read on that level, you know, so it didn't take as much mental strain to process exactly what was happening and to who. Um, so yeah, I had a good time with it on that level. Um, I think I probably preferred the prose in Light of the Jedi in terms of just the style in which it was written. So I think here, like, it's good, but I believe that Kevin, like, mainly works in comic books. 
And I think you can tell from reading this because the prose is a little bit more basic, you know, and it's still like well done, you know, but I guess I'd describe it as like workmanlike, you know, it does the job, but it's just not bringing like that higher standard you might expect from like, another more established novel writer, basically. Um, so yeah, for me, there was a lot to like, um, and yeah, we'll obviously go into more detail in a minute. Um, but yeah, what are your overall thoughts, Kirsty? I think we're actually not too far apart just hearing you talk about it there because i think overall i think i do actually prefer light of the jedi and it, it you have to compare them right because they're the, the first two novels in this series um and I, I expected to prefer the rising storm and maybe that was just because i was seeing a lot of hype for it and excitement which is typical you know when a new book comes out people are excited about it but i, I think i maybe just went into it with slightly higher expectations and maybe that changes things um i think i just preferred light of the jedi Partly because, as you say, I thought the prose was just, it, it was just, in my opinion, it was written better. Um, and that stuff is so subjective. So, you know, everyone's going to have a different opinion on that and that's fine. I just thought it flowed better. I thought it was more evocative. I thought I could just follow what was happening in a, in a way that just seemed more intuitive to me. But everyone will feel differently about that. So that's valid. Um... I can see why the rising storm has pleased so many star wars fans because there's obviously like racier elements with elzar and his development and you know you get all these relationships forming between queer characters and there's just more character development in general but i feel like i was maybe hoping for more um and i think just because of the overall scope of the story they're trying to tell it's just not feasible to get that you can't cram all of that into a novel of this size um so yeah, I think maybe my expectations were just a little too high, which makes me feel bad because Kevin Scott seems like a really lovely guy. Like I always see him interacting with fans on Twitter and, you know, I, I don't want to seem overly critical. Um, for context, if people use Goodreads, I gave this three stars and I gave Light of the Jedi four stars. So that's kind of where I'm at. But three stars is, you know, I, I've given three stars to lots of Star Wars novels and I enjoy them. It's not like three stars is good for me. It's just not great. So yeah. No, definitely. Sometimes there's this mentality, isn't there, where if a book isn't five stars, it's worthless, you know, but three or four stars can still be like a, a really like decent, enjoyable read. It just means that you're not judging it like above a certain quality standard. And that's OK, because yeah, you can still enjoy a book and give it three stars. Um, and yeah, I think with these books, in terms of the mainline High Republic novels, so and so far that's been like the Jedi and the Rising Storm, the way I look at them is they're basically the blockbusters of the current Star Wars publishing world. And by that I mean they have this huge scope, you know, it's events that are affecting thousands or millions or even billions of people in the galaxy far far away there's this huge cast of characters it's very ambitious there's like name drops to like all these different alien species and worlds and objects that are very star Wars specific and you need to have some grasp on the lingo to understand what the hell's going on and yeah it's all just on this huge huge canvas and i think that can make it really fun on one level and i think that's the level where i enjoyed it um, is basically kind of like certain elements of this book reminded me of the Poseidon adventure, which will sound like a really odd comparison, but 
it's because there's like sequences where it's basically like a disaster movie basically you know everything's gone wrong with this grand fair that they're holding and there's flooding and people have to dive into the water to try and rescue other people and do heroic things and it's just like the Poseidon Adventure the Poseidon Adventure was one of my favorite movies as a kid so yeah just that stuff it like tickled a certain part in me you know that I really liked um and yeah, so all that blockbuster stuff, I found it really enjoyable and fun. But at the same time, it definitely means that you don't have that space for that deeper character work. And I think that's typically what really gets us going, isn't it, Kirsty, in terms of Stoll's novels. I think there's so much potential to get inside characters' heads and really get to know them on that interior level that usually a film can't do in the same way, you know. Um, and I think that's why a lot of Claudia Gray's earlier novels worked so well, because stuff like Lost Stars and Bloodline, you really, really get into those characters' heads in those books. And there's obviously pa- passages where characters are introspecting, you get to know what they're thinking, but they're always very fleeting and they're never like at the foreground of the novel. And that's just the nature of what this book is. But it does also mean it's lacking something that's kind of fundamental to what we enjoy about Star Wars. Would you say that's fair, Kirsty? I'm kind of talking for you there. Yeah, because I think they're getting there, or at least like edging towards it, in terms of characters like Elzar and Stellan and Bell, obviously. But um, I guess it's hard to know because we don't know how long this... Do we know? Is Claudia's novel going to be the last one in this series, or is it just going to be kind of an ongoing thing? Um, so they've announced very grand ambitions where they're basically having like phases to the High Republic. And so Claudia's novel is going to be the end of phase one. So presumably it's climactic to this cycle of novels, basically. Mm. But then there will be more. And I'd assume there'll be some sort of like significant time jump or some huge like reset that goes on, you know, as a result of the lost as a result of the fallen star but presumably Um, they'll be moving on to other characters at that point yeah and i'm not sure to be honest they haven't announced that um that could absolutely be the case or it could just be following the characters at a very different point of the point in their lives Mm. so yeah i guess i'm just finding it hard to get truly invested in these characters like i i'm following it and i'm enjoying them but like i'm like how how much deeper are we going to go on them or are we just going to move on to another part of the story sure um yeah because i mean in terms of my experience of actually reading it it really surprised me but for like the first half of it i actually had to keep reminding myself to go back to it whereas star wars novels that i get really invested in i can't put them down i'll devour them in a day wow Um, yeah so yeah it was quite quite different (laughs) yeah no and it's definitely quite slow to get going yeah i think it's the pacing that made me feel that way because and there's this certain like as you say, it was. It felt like a disaster movie. It did have this like sense of inevitability and like very heavy foreboding with like clearly something was going to go wrong with the fair, and then even with a character like Loden, who suffered so much. Like even in the first book, I you know I was attached to him in Light of the Jedi because obviously we spend a lot more time with him like even before he's captured, um, and you have that connection between him and Bell. In this one, we don't spend that much time with him, and it's kind of like his death is clearly just there to serve a purpose for Bell. So, I obviously the way it happens is quite a surprise. It's obviously graphically shocking, but um, I it, it felt so it was so clearly signposted, and I 
believe that was intentional but it just didn't resonate with me and maybe as much as it should have sure yeah i think it was really effective for me because i think i must like not be not have a lot of like book literacy sometimes and i don't mean that to like put myself down but some people are better at noticing cues than others you know in a book you know and they notice the foreshadowing more than others it's like i didn't recognize the foreshadowing in me being a dummy i was like yay he's free they've rescued Lozen. they're all gonna go back to the jedi temple now and he's gonna be healed and then it's like ah Oh, see, I wish I had experienced it that way because maybe it would have had more of an impact. I was just like, oh, sure. this guy's a dead man walking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's basically context is that I was sending Kirsty like intermittent texts being like, hey, have you read it yet? Have you read it yet? Have you read it yet? Because I was like really like hyped and buzzed after reading the ending. And that sounds horrible. So it's a really awful ending, you know, with lots of tragedy. But it's like a really really blunt cliffhanger you know like it really ends right in the middle of this like huge climactic moment um so there's no like cool off period i guess in this book um so yeah it kind of occupied my mind quite a lot actually we actually have an interesting quote from kevin scott about like the creation of loden and when that decision was made about what was going to happen to him i was wondering could you read that out kirsty so we're in spoiler zone loden was always going to have that ending when Loden was created, that moment was set aside for him in the future. There was a moment when I was wondering, is Belle the one who finds him in those final moments? But yeah, you do want to pull the rug out from your readers, and there is that moment when you have a real punch-the-air moment, when Loden's lightsaber flies into his hand and he says, point me to the baddies, and you go, they're back, and they're going to be okay. And Loden is obviously in a very bad way, but you think it's all going to be okay, and it is a bit of a false victory, because you need that final moment. I think maybe at this point, my problem is that I've just read and watched too much Star Wars. Like, this is what Star Wars does, so it no longer sure. surprises me. Of course they kill the mentor. Like, Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe I've been spoiled in that regard. Yeah, no, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, like, it is pretty bleak to think that it's obviously, you know, the previous novel, like, there was no hint of what was ultimately going to become of Loden, you know? But again, you could probably infer it from the fact he's, like, the mentor, you know, and he goes missing. It probably well, won't end well. And but... I see, that's the thing. In Light of the Jedi, he's not just presented as the mentor. He's an established character in his own right. And I, yeah. I was quite attached to him. And once he's captured, we are seeing things from his perspective and we're seeing Martian from his perspective. And so it is presented quite differently. So as soon as it's switched perspective in The Rising Storm and it was more about how Bell perceived Loden and how his loss was it was affecting him as opposed to Loden um it was pretty clear to me that it was like oh like they're they're just going to kill him for for Bell's development yeah I do wonder what it means for Bell in the next book because obviously when Bell's introduced in this one he has a replacement master basically because obviously Loden's gone missing and they, they suggest that things are okay but they're not the greatest you know and he obviously misses Loden a lot and now, obviously, Belle has this horrific trauma <laughs> as a result of seeing Loden die in this particularly horrific way. And yeah, I'm curious about what's going to happen to him. And I have literally no idea what will happen to him, but I do want to see it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm not super sure of like the the protocols of the Jedi at this point in time, but like he goes through so much and really rises to the occasion in this story. I'm talking about Belle. Like he does he need a master at this point yeah like has he kind of gone through enough trials and he saved so many people he made such a positive impact and even while he was like still struggling with that grief that yeah um, i mean 
would it almost be redundant for him to have a master now? I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And yeah, I guess, like you say, they make a really big deal of the fact that Bell is such like a model Jedi in this book and he does like so many amazing heroic things. So yeah, it's maybe like he kind of like falls down, you know, in the next one and he's not capable of that in the same way he was before. But yeah, we'll see. You know, ho- hopefully he's fine. Hopefully he's fine. They-, they must have therapists at the Jedi Temple, right? I mean, you-, you feel for him at the beginning because it's almost like he is having a crisis of faith. Like he doesn't quite believe his new master when she's saying like he's in the force he's with us and he's like well i can't feel him but i guess i'll pretend to and of course it was because Loden was still alive so maybe in a way is his faith restored now obviously he's gonna be grieving for Loden in the meantime but he will be able to feel him in the force now whereas he couldn't before so in in a way maybe it will restore his faith in the force itself yeah I know, I like this optimistic outlook you're suggesting, Kirsty. I, I really, I sincerely hope that's what happens because that poor kid, you know, he's really yeah. suffered. So I know. I don't want the just... next novel to just be more suffering for him, basically. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but in terms of characters, another big one that we should discuss is Elsa Mann. Um, and yeah, like, he, <laughs> I'm very so, so predictable. And I know I've said that several times this episode, but... Elsa is definitely my fave um, because yeah, he's the troubled one. He's the one who doesn't follow the rules. He's a bit of a bad boy, I suppose. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like we get more of his inner workings than we do for most of the other characters. You know, you get inside his head more. And I just kind of like how like flagrantly like inappropriate he is according to like Jedi standards. You know, and he becomes more and more no fucks to give, basically, <laughs> over the course of the book. It's really, like, by the end, you know, when he, like, develops these kind of, like, super sensei, like, force powers, basically. Yeah, when he's flinging Nihil left and right, you know, just, like, massacring them. I I was, like, convinced at that point that the book was going to end with him being cast out from the Jedi Order. Obviously, that did not happen. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, they really, like, go quite strong with him going to, like, a dark, dark place in this book. And, Mm. yeah, that definitely makes me very, very curious now what his resolution is in the next one yeah there was a part when i think it was when he was attacking the nile like you said the the nile were acting like animals and like animals they'd be put down like that's that's pretty close to anakin come on oh yeah that has to be by design so but then there's this whole like oh he was just pretending that he was on the dark side i I know i'm kind of confused by like where they're gonna go with this character yeah. Like, is uh, he genuinely? I don't know. Do yeah. Think? I was a bit disorientated by it, I must say, because I felt like they were going so strong with stressing how dark side he was becoming, you know, in that moment, that I was like, there's no way back from this, you know. Not not to say he was, like, irretrievably lost from the dark side, but I didn't see how he could go on being a Jedi anymore, you know, like, under the authority of the Jedi Order. That didn't make sense to me. So then I was kind of surprised, you know, when at the end, when they attack the Nihil base, he's there with them, you know, and mm. it's kind of like forgotten what had happened. And I know this like urgency around trying to track them down quickly and stuff in that moment. So they haven't really had time to like account for everything. And that's okay. But yeah, like I definitely need to see the like ramifications of what happened in this book explored like soon you know like ideally in that Claudia Gray novel and I I feel optimistic that they will be 
Um, but yeah, there just wasn't that like addressing of it that I expected in this book. Um, we do actually have another Cavan Scott quote where he goes into Elsa's flirtation with the dark side a bit more, so I'll read that out quickly. I wanted to explore Jedi overreaching, and yes, as you say, touching the dark side, and then explore how they react to it. I think it was important to show that Jedi can have regret, and they can also plan to make a difference after that and make amends. We're told once you're started on that path, the dark side will forever be a part of your life. But how many of us in our pasts, especially when we're younger and perhaps a bit cockier, have done things we wish we could change, but you've got to move on from it and you've got to learn. And I think if our heroes are going to be real heroes, they have to have those moments too. For me, yeah, I wanted to have a Jedi who touches the dark side, who flirts with it, for the best of intentions. That's when the dark side is most dangerous. We've seen that before in Dooku and Anakin. The dark side uses those best intentions against the people who have them. And that's exactly what happens to Elza. He's not completely blameless. But at the same point, as soon as it happens, he realises what he's done. And he doesn't then want to delve into it more. He realises he needs to do something about it. And he wants to ask for help. I think, if anything, a hero that asks for help is a fascinating thing to explore. It allows us to explore the relationship between Elza and Stellan. And the fact that, you know, who do you turn to when you have really let yourself down and realise how dangerous the path that you're on is. To have the peace of mind and the state of mind to go to a friend and say, I need help. That was something I wanted to get in there. That's something we can build on for the future. So what do you think about that, Kirsty? I guess it's almost a what if scenario where Anakin might have been honest with Obi-Wan about his vulnerabilities and like asked him for help as opposed to kind of just pretending everything's fine. And and maybe the impact of Palpatine there was that he like pulled him away from Obi-Wan and he felt like he couldn't make that connection anymore. But having someone like Stellan who, you know, you have that pre-existing relationship and trust with that he can say, I need help here. I guess it's just interesting to see genuinely supportive, open-minded Jedi for once. <laughs> you yeah. definitely don't get that in the prequel era. Exactly. Yeah. So I do really want to see that conversation. Like, correct me if I'm wrong. It's been a few weeks since I read it, so I might just be forgetting. But as far as I remember, we don't actually get that like conversation between Elsa and Stellan in this book, right? It's like it's that. like a half conversation. It's like let's put a pin in it. But Stellan does say something like, "The most significant thing here is that you acknowledge that you need help." So, right. Yeah. And he obviously sensed Elsa slipping when it happened. So they they do, but like it's more like we need to tackle this when there's actually some breathing space, and there obviously isn't in the events of the book. Yeah. So. No, that makes sense. And I guess my main curiosity is I can definitely see Stellan being supportive and helping. You know, but someone like Yoda, situation. probably not. Yeah. No. Exactly. It's kind of like, well, will that be taken to the Jedi Council? If so, yeah. how will the Jedi Council <laughs> respond right. to that situation? So I don't see them being so forgiving i suppose you know i see them being a little bit more legalistic right and precise with like what they will and won't allow so yeah i think that would be a really interesting scenario if you know at the start of the next one we see elza and stellan going together to the council to explain what happened and stellan obviously wants them to be supportive and help his friend but they're like nope you've gone too far you're out you know i'd then find that really interesting to see what the consequences of that decision would be um, because yeah, I think they could be facing mass walkouts. <laughs> well, yeah, because how is it going to impact his relationship with Ava as well? 
Like, the fact that Yoda is mentioned in these books, like, they're making a point of reminding you Yoda was a Jedi during this time, and then Cavan in that interview is quoting Yoda in Empire, like, you know, once you go down that path. Is it Empire that he says that in, or Return of the Jedi? I can't remember. Oh, I think um, it's in Return of the Jedi, but not 100% sure. Yeah, it's just, Yoda is just so... <laughs> fatalistic almost isn't it? it's like it's very black and white it's like yeah yeah, um, yeah. i feel he's that way all the way through until the last jedi he's like ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah which yeah and i think if that is his attitude it would make sense that he wouldn't be very forgiving or tolerant of someone like elsa and what elsa's done um but again we don't know that yet so i'm just speculating um but yeah you mentioned ava and elsa's relationship with her and yeah Obviously, Ava doesn't really appear in this book. She's like present as an absence, I suppose, as much as that makes sense. Because I kind of wish I'd known that going in. <laughs> oh, I was yeah. Sort of looking forward to them being reunited, and it didn't happen. Yeah, I know, right? Um, and it definitely does feel like a big long tease for the whole book, because there's no other way of saying this, but Elsa is very horny for Ava throughout this whole book. And yeah, it's he's got it bad guys he's really really got it bad for this woman and yeah it's just kind of sad because he's clearly like constantly returning to this memory that he has of them <laughs> it feels so weird to use this terminology but them hooking up <laughs> when they were like padawans basically you know i presume they were like teenagers or young adults or something um and yeah that is clearly like a major preoccupation of his it comes up several times um and yeah i'm just fascinated by that you know and it's clearly just building and building and building and it's going to culminate in something but again i don't know what but whatever ha- whatever it is i'm very curious to see it it better happen in the next book so but- i just don't want it to be drawn out more and more you know yeah in a way i'm happy that that's being saved for claudia because i do think that's a strength of her writing to write those intimate connections between characters but we did also have an interaction in um light of the jedi where she said like we're not padawans anymore yes so in a way she's made that choice and you know obviously she can change her mind in future but like something presumably has to happen in order for that to be something that happens for her to change her mind on something so important to her um in general i guess i shouldn't be surprised but the way (laughs) the story is presenting sexual relationships as like I'm sure it depends on every individual's perspective, but when I'm reading it, it's like they're kind of trying to have their cake and eat it too in terms of allowing the Jedi to have sexual relationships, but you can't really get away from the fact that it's sort of presented as a moral failing when Eldar does have sex and it distracts him from his post. Yeah, It's like he could have been doing anything. He could have just been sleeping, but it's the fact that they chose to have him having casual sex yeah it's like oh my god i neglected my duties as jedi it's like okay this is a bit puritanical for me yeah it feels very moralistic doesn't it yeah uh, yeah and i also found it funny because in my head it was kind of like a fade to black moment you know in terms of how it was described but it was even tamer than that like when i went back and found the quote it's literally this they stood in silence for a moment and he by the way he's not having sex with ava he's having sex with this random woman called samira who I, well, I don't she's not a random I... woman. She's involved. <laughs> she is involved in the plot. Sorry, I, pretty, that's very cool. I liked her, actually. I thought she was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, she. Uh, yeah, she's not just like there for him to sleep with her. So, yeah, I'm being unfair. But um... she, What, is she the coordinator of the fair? 
Yeah, exactly. So yeah. So in a way, it's almost like she's neglecting her duties too because they're they're having sex and they're supposed to be working. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she she feels very relatable. It's kind of like the sort of job someone in the real world would have, you know, like in a way that people are never going to be Jedi, but people are going to be events coordinators. So yeah, it's a good audience self insight, I guess. But yeah, here's the um, quotation. They stood in silence for a moment, enjoying each other's company, their free hands resting on the railing in front of them, millimetres from each other. Elsa felt the tip of one of Samira's fingers brush his own, and turned to find her looking intently at him. Their heads came together, lips parted, arguments forgotten. And then there's like another bit about saying they were otherwise occupied. <laughs> and yeah, it just leaves it up to the viewer's imagination, basically. And again... I, I don't want like explicit porn in like my mainstream Star Wars books. Let me be very clear about that. But it is funny how like that they dance around it so so carefully. Yeah, it just tickles me. I guess they know that kids will be reading these too. That's probably true. Yes, even though they're marketed as adults, I think well, yeah, a, yeah, a, a, a still Star Wars. Yeah, and a twelve-year-old could easily read this as long as they're of a sufficient reading level. So yeah, they'd be fine. Um. And yeah, there was another interesting dynamic with Elsa. Um, well, there's lots of interesting dynamics with Elsa. So there's a lot going on with him. He's kind of like the main character throughout these books so far. Um, he has a very interesting thing going on with Ty Yorick, who is like a rogue je- former Jedi, I guess. Like a former Jedi turned like mercenary, I guess. And she's just out there as like a hired hand who like helps people who pay her the money, basically. Um, and yeah, she's a really interesting character in her own right but relevant to Elsa is that there's this kind of like force bond type of thing going on between them which I found really fascinating um I do have a passage from the book that goes into this um transcribed um could you read it out please Kirsty it's kind of long so I'm sorry I've highlighted it Elsa reached out with his mind and Ty did likewise he had done this before but only with Jedi he knew Jedi he trusted Master Quarry, Stellan, Ava. The Force joined them as one. Why, why, why had his last thought been of Ava before their minds touched? To be honest, the memory her name threw up probably explained it. The memory he always had, back when they were Padawans, back when they were happy to bend the rules. All at once he saw Ava's quarters, felt the sheets beneath their bodies. Wow, Ty said out loud, you dirty dog. I'm impressed. He banished the memory, although it was already too late. He could feel Ty's amusement, not to mention her attraction. He saw Ty as a youngling, as a Padawan. She shifted slightly, uncomfortable, wanting to break the connection but knowing she couldn't. Faces formed in his mind, names floated on the edge of her memories. He saw them train, heard them laugh, and then felt shadows fall. A decision made, a life lost. Elzar felt Ty wanting to break away and slipped his fingers through her own, squeezing her hand tight, not to stop her but to show her that for the first time in years she wasn't alone that he understood. Force knew what she had seen from his own past, what regrets she'd shared, but they were here together now and probably always would be. Elzar broke the connection, although he still held on to Ty's hand. Well, she said, sounding breathless, that was... The Force working through us, Elzar said, feeling strangely bashful, and not just because of the things Ty had seen. It had been years since he'd allowed himself to get so close to someone, Samira included. The experience he'd just shared was deeper than any physical contact, more intimate. Yeah, and I just found this really interesting because, again, there has to be at least one mention of Raylo every episode. 
and this screamed Raylo to me. Um, and, and obviously, it's, the characters are completely different from Ray and Kylo, let me be completely clear on that. But just in terms of that metaphysical connection between them and the language that's used to describe it, you know, the emphasis on the intimacy that is present in this type of bond through the Force. And also the sense of how like mutually surprising and overwhelming it is for both of them. It, and it's kind of like this involuntary sharing of memories and experiences. I think all those things occur with that Force bond that Ray and Kylo share as well. And yeah, it's just interesting to see another example of that come up in the new canon. Because I know that Force bonds have been a thing for a long time, I think, from the old, from the old Knights of the Old Republic video games. But in terms of the new canon, we haven't seen a lot of cases of this. And yeah, I always get a bit excited when I see one. <laughs> so yeah, this yeah, I me. I guess at this stage, it's still quite a relatively new novel phenomenon for them to have like force users on a level with these kind of dynamics that are different from like Luke and his dad or his mentor Yoda, you know, mm, um, yeah. to have like people of a similar age similar perspectives on the world or even like a little different but like to come together and get each other's perspectives in such an intimate unsaid way um yeah there's just so much potential there for some really interesting dynamics and relationships so it's cool to see them exploring them yeah no i really liked it i mean what did you think about ty as a character the idea of having like a former jedi padawan and like picking up with that character long after they've left the order I think it's a really good idea. I didn't feel too attached to her throughout what we got here, just because, again, like we were saying at the beginning of the discussion, there's just so much that it's probably hard for them to explore these characters deeply. But I think there's potential, and I'd read something else with her as a character, whether it's the next Claudia Gray novel, or if there's another kind of spin-off novel that focuses on her, I'd definitely be interested in her story. Yeah. Now, I think she has a lot of potential, and I feel like from what they're seeding here, that they are going to explore her in a more significant way. So you don't tease that sort of like tragic backstory to why she left the Jedi Order, and then not illuminate that, you know? I guess my fear is that they might do it in like, a comic or something that I won't read. Right. <laughs> but that's <laughs> always the danger of the High Republic, you know? And I would accept that. And I'll just read the Wikipedia article, it's fine. I can find out that way. Um, but yeah, it's just one of the limitations, isn't it, with these vast multimedia projects, because you're never going to be able to follow everything and grasp every single detail and nuance. Like, I know that in the comic books, those are going into what's up with Ava during the events of the Rising Storm, for example. So that story is out there, you know, for people who are interested and want to follow the comics. Um, but yeah, from what I've seen, it's lots of getting tangled up with the Drengar, which, yeah, doesn't look like fun. It's a poor raver. Um, and yeah, another major character in this book is obviously Stellan, who also has that really close relationship with Elsa. Although I feel I should stop talking about Elsa, so we've already dedicated a lot of time to him. Uh, yes, yeah, so what did you think about Stellan, Kirsty? Did you like him? Yeah, I liked him more than I thought I would. Obviously, at first, they are hinting at the fact that certain characters find him a bit stuck up. But I think that's like a facade and as he's tested and challenged, I think he does become quite honest, at least with the reader, in terms of what he's comfortable with. And obviously by the end, like he he develops this relationship with the Chancellor because he saves her and, and she recognises that and kind of puts her hopes on him, understandably, as her saviour, that he'll like represent the Jedi in terms of rebuilding the public's trust. 
but he does not seem that happy about that. <laughs> he says yes, but I don't think he really wants to. Um, probably more out of like guilt and duty, and I'm just kind of interested to see how that's going to go for him. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting setup, like to have this idea of like Jedi PR, you know, because that's the sort of like perspective we haven't had time for before in other types of Star Wars stories. You know, like, and I guess you can infer it, like, to a certain extent from, you know, like, in Revenge of the Sith, there has to be some sort of PR spin associated with why all the Jedi are wiped out. And there are are tie-in materials that go into them saying how awful the Jedi were to the general public and justifying it that way. Um, But yeah, it's interesting to get a bit of a closer look, you know, at that PR machine working with the Jedi Order in this book. So, yeah, it's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Um... And yeah, then there's obviously also, there's loads of characters and yeah, like some of them we just don't have as much to say about, you know, there's not much to say about Lena So in this book. Like, I guess the main thing is that she just makes a stupid mistake by holding this enormous fair, which is basically like a big flashing beacon to the bad guys saying, come and destroy me, come and ruin us. You know, it's a bit dumb, but I actually on that note I must say I really hope that in the next book they don't do this thing again where there's like this other like great disaster you know like they've got to do something else you know so I know the like disaster in Light of the Jedi is very different from what happens at the fair in this book but it does kind of like create this all-encompassing event that takes up a lot of real estate in the book you know and I feel like that distracts from this sort of character stuff that would ultimately be more interesting so I really hope that the next book is just more characters and less big spectacle and big big thing goes boom you know i think that's that's possible because i guess putting it into context at this point they're not really used to bad things happening Mm. and you know the nile gaining momentum and becoming this genuine threat has been quite a shock to them i don't think they really took it seriously um so maybe it is it is quite different and i think the chancellor presumably learns from this like surely (laughs) if she doesn't then she doesn't deserve to be chancellor anymore (laughs) oh my goodness um yeah then let's talk quickly about the villains um so yeah obviously main guy is marshy and roe and i'm just confused i don't know what's up with this guy right i'm not sure we're meant to know what's up with him so well i hope not because they're not really giving us anything apart from the fact that he hated his dad (laughs) what do you need (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like him in concept and like sure. he's obviously chilling but yes. I was also and again like I don't expect everything from Light of the Jedi to be followed up with but there was you know obviously there was this like relationship or like s- secretive thing with um, the Santeca character who was like whispering to Loden and he didn't realise it was her until the very end and then she was like oh you know you've set me free too presumably she dies at that point but um I don't know, like, there just wasn't a follow-up in terms of, like, Martian's abuse of her, and that really struck me in the first novel. It felt quite central. And, um, I guess in this one, it's more like the impact of the reveal to the rest of the Nile that that's what he's doing, and the paths aren't really his, and Panator kind of coming in and using that to his advantage, or at least... Temporarily. Yeah, what he thinks is going to happen, and then he has to obviously go off into exile himself um i don't think we've seen the last of him but in terms of martian himself i'm like 
okay cool concept cool character design but i don't know what he wants still and it's yeah. the end of the second book and i'm just like is that the point is the nile they're just like a gaping void of neediness is he just supposed to be is he not supposed to know what he wants maybe it all stems from what this new weapon will be and we'll figure it out from that but i'm still like are you just causing chaos for its own sake because that's not that interesting to me yeah no 100 percent like so i feel like you don't necessarily need some like clearly defined external goal but you do need to have some sense of what the character wants deep down right you know in their own right because again sequel trilogy <laughs> with kylo you know like there's never like a grand speech about oh i want to become the ruler of coruscant <laughs> something obviously kylo would never want anyway but you just get it's very clearly communicated that this person just wants to find their place in the world, you know, right. like they want to find that like acceptance somewhere, you know, and they're just horribly confused and lost in terms of where they're going to find it. Yeah. And that was enough, you know, that was what you needed to know for Kylo. And that gave him like a richness that really informed all his actions subsequent to that first movie. Yeah, and because he was the foil to Rey and it was her coming of age story, it was a coming of age story for both of them. But yeah. for Marshawn, he's not the mirror image to any of these other characters. So it's like, how how do they fit together in a way that, like, you know, that they're actually meant to care about him on a human level as yeah. opposed to just, like, an existential threat? Yeah, that's a really good point. He's not really, like, a foil to anyone, is he? Not so far. It could, could still happen. No, definitely. It just doesn't feel very personal. And... It feels weird saying that. So it should be very personal at this point, you know, because obviously he's like killed Loden. So I, I guess maybe they'll do that, you know, they'll explore like a direct like animosity between Bell and Martian Rowe. You know, mm. that could be a direction they take it in because of what yeah. happened to Loden. And I'd be interested in that. But yeah, I just really need to see that developed in a more compelling way, I guess. Because yeah, you're right. At the moment it just feels like all the stuff with the Nihil's happening in its own little pocket universe and it just obviously they're creating chaos you know and they're causing lots of problems for the heroes but it does just all feel very very external and like it's not really like penetrating any of them and in in an anterior way at the moment yeah so maybe yeah. we will see like once you get an opportunity to explore how Belfield now but of course he was working in this book on the assumption that Loden was gone already and it yes. didn't change things in that way for him because he was, you know, he's a Jedi. They don't take things personally. <laughs> so what is it going to be? Is this going to be a snap in some way? Um, or is it going to be something else? Is there going to be some revelation that, like, connects him with them in a way that feels more emotionally significant? Yeah, I hope so. And yeah, and also very quickly, it was interesting to see Lorna D become a little bit more prominent in this book. Yeah. Um, I did like her tweeting with Pan. But yeah, that she like kissed him and made him think that they were going to be the new leaders. Yes, exactly. I really liked how she manipulated him. And yeah, she just gained a little bit more dimension in this book compared to what she had in Light of the Jedi. Because she's obviously in that, but you don't see her display much agency, you know, in yeah. the context of Light of the Jedi. So I got a little bit more of a handle on her. And Did yeah. I... Did I imagine this, or are we getting a Lorna D story? We are, exactly. Okay, We're getting cool. an audio drama. Um, okay. Which is maybe what all you're listening to Agatha Christie audio books <laughs> be preparing you for. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
um, yeah, I am excited for that. And yeah, it will be an interesting listen. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued by her. I feel like there's potential in, like, similarly to, you know, how you get a Kira character. Like, uh, I guess she's a villain in that she's on the wrong side and she opposes the Jedi, but there's got to be something more compelling going on underneath, right? Like, where did Lorna come from and what does she want? Yeah, exactly. And I'd like to think that we're going to get that because, you know, when it's a project just is literally named after her. It really should have that real estate to explore her in that deeper way and make sense of her motivations and stuff. So, yeah, I really enjoyed the Afro one, and I think yes. it did it did that for that character. And I know that she was already beloved from the comics, but we hadn't read those. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed and exploring her character and how, yes, she was bad in that she did bad things, but there were very interesting reasons, and you know, she has redeeming qualities. Yeah. Exactly, it really, really humanised her, which was very welcome. Um, okay, brilliant. So I guess to round it off, let's just go through some hopes slash expectations. I know that's the bad word, but whatever. For the next novel, which will succeed this one, called The Fallen Star by Claudia Gray. Um, so yeah, what are your expectations for that one, Kirsty? Do you have any? Like, Is there any particular threads that you are really keen to see them explore and pick up? I know we've discussed a few already i'm now like half wondering if we're actually not going to get the further romance between ava and elzar and she's actually really going to put her foot down and kind of break his heart and maybe that's what tips him towards the dark side mm. kind of quite a different take on the annie dala that it's like not the love itself it's the rejection that could be really interesting, yeah. And I could see Claudia really milking that for every last ounce of angst. Mm. And yeah, there would be a hell of a lot of angst in that situation. <laughs> so yeah, I think that could be great. Um, and yet another thing I was thinking, um, and this will sound slightly conspiratorial, but we'll see, it will be out there for everyone to listen back to if I happen to be right. But I'm wondering if the fallen star of the title might actually be Ava rather than <gasps> Elsa. Oh, that would be something i know right and i have informing that i did find a quote let me find the quote oh no the word star occurs everywhere so <laughs> give me a second i mean i do wonder if obviously we don't get anything of her towards the end of this book i'm like is she gonna feel an immense amount of guilt about not being there to help yeah exactly that's definitely one thing that i was thinking because this is clearly like a huge cataclysm isn't it you know and she's obviously off doing her own thing and she is helping to protect the galaxy in her own way but she would clearly have been a massive help at the events of the fair and i think there's even like reference to that you know because she has that ability to link minds and like connect the jedi together and i think someone literally says oh god if we had ava here it would be much easier to fight this you know and deal with this situation um so yeah i feel like there probably will be ramifications to that um, and yeah, the quote, um, where I think it could tie into the title of the next book and the potential consequences for Ava's fate, you know, and what happens to her standing in the Jedi Order and whether she might, God forbid, fall to the dark side. Um, so yeah, this is the quote. Elsa's mood darkened. This is when he realises that Ava isn't coming to the fair, basically, and he's mm. very upset. And for the first time in months, he felt the shadows of his vision return. Ava wasn't coming. He had been so looking forward to spending time with her again, to hearing her voice, her laugh, without the hiss of a hollow projector. No wonder Stalin had told him not to wait. 
He had known she wasn't on the shuttle. The sanctimonious puff bag, which I love. No. <laughs> it's a great insult. He was being a friend. I know, right? <laughs> He's being very mean. So- um, sorry, I just finished the quote, then um, we'll discuss. Um, however keenly he felt his disappointment, Ava's absence also highlighted how far apart they had drifted. He glanced up at the sky, spotting a single star among the blue. She was out there right now, keeping the frontier safe while he was here on Valo, shifting ancient trinkets from the back of a transport. Tomorrow, she could be leading the Jedi into battle for all he knew, while he would be gawped at by diplomats and tourists. And what do you know happened? That definitely did not happen. Um, And yet the part there that really stood out to me was him associating Ava with a star, you know, Hmm. spotting a single star among the blue. And yeah, thinking about Ava in relation to that, because... I feel like Elsa, he's not really a star at the moment. You know, he's kind of a bit of like a sorry excuse for a Jedi in a lot of ways. No, yeah, you're right. The more I think about it, the more I think you have a point. Yeah, and I think they've made a real deal of the fact that Ava is this like exemplary Jedi and she's everything a Jedi should be. And I just feel it would have much more dramatic impact if something happened to cause her to fall. So, yeah, we'll see. I expect there will be multiple characters falling, to be honest, on the basis of the events of these books. Yeah, I guess it's it's really hard to know because it would just involve, you know, there would be a lot of heavy lifting again from Claudia's book and we just don't have that development um, for Ava at this point. So, but anything could happen. Like, she could easily bring something in. Like, maybe, maybe they do resume the romance and that's a factor or... I think these things have to be addressed in some way. It's just hard to know which way they'll go at this point because like I said I think the way that they are depicting sex in in intimate romantic relationships is a bit strange but I guess I should expect that from Star Wars yeah they always have like a bit of a messed up relationship with um, (laughs) intimacy don't they Um, but yeah no I'm really really intrigued for the novel and I really hope it does lean into the like sexual aspects and the romantic aspects because I think in Claudia's hands those could be explored in really really interesting ways because often stars has sort of danced around them, but they are so fundamental, you know, to the human experience. And a big deal in the Jedi is that they're not really meant to have those experiences. And it's like, yes, technically they're allowed to have sex, but in the framing of this novel, as you said, Kirsty, they make it very clear that it is some kind of like moral failing to do it. You know, so even though it might be tolerated, they're definitely not like cheerleading them on. You know? <laughs> I think and, they're just making yeah. a point of it being so integral to to Elzar at this point. Like, not just that he's having sexual relationships with other characters, but how he feels about Ava and, like, remembering their time together, that it would be strange for that not to continue going forward. And, like, clearly it's going to be the elephant in the room next time that they meet. So, yeah, it's just so- interesting to see. Because I think... It's been a while since I read it, but the impression I got from Light of the Jedi is that she do fe- she does feel the same way. It's just she doesn't want to act on it. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think if something happened, you know, to push her that bit further, you know, and made her think, no, screw it, you know, I want what I want, you know, and sod the Jedi, I, I would just love that for them. You know, I'd be like cheering them on. I'd be like, you go, guys, <laughs> you go and be happy. Because I've said, um, I think on Twitter I did a thread, being like, I really want a story where Jedis leave the Jedi Order, and they don't leave the Jedi Order to go evil and become Sith. They leave the Jedi Order because they want the things that like regular people want. You know, they want mm. like a relationship, they want like a family, they want just like a regular life. 
you know, because I feel like it's always demonized, you know, when a character like leaves the Jedi, you know, it's always framed as some sort of fault of theirs. Uh, not always. For Ahsoka, it's considered like a, a personal strength. Yeah, no, exactly. And that is definitely one of the reasons why I want to watch the Clone Wars, so I can see that play out. There are obviously different phases to it, but in, in terms of like how that is resolved, it is like she draws a line in the sand on her own terms and it's considered a good thing. But unlike what you're talking about, it's not so that she can go off and have personal relationships. She effectively becomes like a lone nomad, but she is essentially still a Jedi in terms of, I mean, there are Dave Filoni quotes out there to that effect, right? Yeah. She's, she's still acting like a Jedi. She's just not part of the order. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And yeah. So I feel like, you know, people who become jedi as a rule they're taken from their families as very young children you know a very young child is not gonna like be in a position to like make a choice you know about what they want in the future and that is kind of cultish you know and i know that that sounds odd to some people because obviously the jedi are framed as heroes you know and it's framed as like a good organization and obviously it does do lots of great things in many ways but at the same time they've really got to sort their methods out and obviously that's where the potential is for like the new Jedi Order like whatever Rey does next you know um, yeah. But, yeah it's kind of like when Padme offers to Anakin when she says like come help raise the babies on Naboo like what if he had taken that offer like that might have been a good thing for him <laughs> just go and go be a family man it would have avoided a whole lot of pain wouldn't it <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh um but yeah, I just think there's so much potential for those types of stories. And like, again, Ty Yorick, who gave me like a flash of hope for that sort of thing. You know, it's obviously Ty, again, it's framed like something happened, you know, to cause her to be cast out. She didn't choose to leave. Or at least that's the vibe we get. She was forced to. And that's like a source of like pain for her. But yeah, I do want to see some people just wholeheartedly be like, no, sod you. I'm leaving. Piss off. <laughs> leave me alone and yeah and how the jedi order would feel about that you know whether they'd even allow it because they'd presumably consider those people dangerous you know because they're fully trained and powerful so yeah Mm. i just think it raises so many interesting questions and i want a star wars story that does that and i might just end up having to write fan fiction who knows but (laughs) we'll see whether any of that is addressed i do think they're dancing around it i think it's just a case of and i I guess it comes kind of close to where they were at in terms of Finn's story with the stormtroopers. They they tiptoe around these interesting ideas that like deconstruct the the institutions that you have within Star Wars, right? But then, if you do that, can you go back? Like, if you challenge them too much, like, yeah. what do you do going forward with Star Wars? And maybe they just don't want to go that far. Yeah, no, that is true. I guess with this High Republic window of time, something they have in their favour is it could be like it's so long ago, it's all long forgotten, you know, whatever mm. like happened back then, it doesn't really have influence on th- those later points of the Jedi Order. I, I guess I would just love to think that it does have some impact on how and why the prequel Je- era Jedi is so fucked up. Yeah, no, that's true. Because if something like that did happen, you know, something like what I suggested, it could cause them to clamp down even harder. Right. They learn lessons from it, but it's the wrong lessons. Yeah. And that could be really interesting. So, yeah. I I do need to stop with this path, though, because I have been guilty in the past where you kind of craft a storyline in your mind and then you want that. And then when you get what you get, you're kind of a bit disappointed. It's not what you built up in your mind, you know, and I don't want to be in that place with it. Um, 
but yeah, I, I feel like I'm not super bad with that. You know, I'm not like crafting anything too elaborate. And yeah, just really, I'm just curious to see what happens because I do think there's so much potential. And yeah, I think if there is a frustration with the book so far is it's kind of like 80% potential and 20% stuff actually happening at the moment, you know? it's all It all feels like on the precipice of something. And yeah, we just don't have that like resolution to it to make it truly satisfying yeah hmm. yeah it'll be interesting to see how much changes in that next book or if it starts to become clearer the extent to which this I still think of it as project luminous <laughs> like how long it's going to go on for or if they're going to because you know it's becoming pretty successful fans seem happy with it are they just going to try and spin it out for as long as possible because that's kind of where Star Wars is at at this point right it's like Marvel in that regard yeah definitely I expect it probably has quite a long shelf life because yeah they've clearly invested a lot of resources in it and it feels like it because I think they were hyping Project Luminous for so long it can feel a bit like it's been going longer than it has because Light of the Jedi was only published at the start of this year yeah and yeah it like it's easy to think it's been going for like three or four years because we've been knowing about Project <laughs> Luminous that long. Yeah. You know? So yeah, we have a bit of a skewed perspective. Um, but yeah, I think that's everything I wanted to say. Do you have any final thoughts, Kirsty? No, I don't think so. Um, yeah, just that there are obviously like pretty tantalising things happening, especially towards the end of this book, but it all kind of depends on how that's brought forward and if there are any threads from Light of the Jedi and especially... Elzar and Ava's relationship, like how that gets picked up. So, yeah. Be intrigued to see what's next. Exactly. Interesting times are hopefully ahead of us. So, yeah, we will see. We will see. And yeah, next time we're back, we should hopefully be talking about that Mandalorian special going into the Luke moment, mm. <laughs> as I shall call it. So, yeah, you'll hear our thoughts on that when that comes out. So, yeah, exciting times. Yeah, I'm interested to see if it is actually just focused on Luke as a character or if it's about the final episode in general because there's really interesting stuff that happens with Din as a character. Yeah. You know, and and Bo-Katan. Yeah, um, no, 100% and the whole air of Mandalore thing, isn't it? So, yeah. Yeah, I hope that doesn't get, like, brushed aside because that would, like, feed into my fear that the show is less about the Mandalorian himself than other aspects of Star Wars being showcased in the show that happens to be called The Mandalorian. So, yeah, I really hope that Din gets, like, a good amount of time and there's, like, more insight into what's going on there because, yeah, that'd be good. Mm. Um, But, yeah, let's wrap it up. I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. I'm Kirsty, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye!